following content is provided by Mythgard Institute. Mythgard, making scholarly discussion of fantasy and science fiction literature free and open to everyone. Okay, good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 20 on Morgoth's Ring. I don't think I've ever before ended up having a class take actually twice as long. Not in the Mythgard Academy, I mean, uh, as I had originally projected, but it's all good. Uh, I, I have already, I mean... I've been saying for a while that I was not going to go fast uh, through the Athrobeth because uh, that is a, a very, this is a very remarkable uh, work here. Now, well, Maori took longer, but I expected it to take longer. So that's, uh, that's the point. Not the absolute length, just the uh, um, uh, uh, how much longer than we, I had originally planned, but Anyway, uh, so we are we are back, uh, and I'm going to jump right into things soon. But first, one quick announcement I wanted to make one 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 announcement, and then one uh, observation. Uh, the announcement uh, I just wanted to draw everybody's attention to the fact that Middle Moot is coming up soon, not instantly, but on uh, in on uh, in October. Um, the uh, oh wait, tenth. 11th, 10th, I think, whichever one is the Saturday, uh, is uh, is going to be Middlemoot, uh, hosted in Kansas City, but we're going to be uh, holding it entirely online this year uh, and uh, uh, really invite folks to uh, get involved with that. We had a whole bu it's the, the registration is open for that now. We've had a whole bunch of signups this week. I can tell people are excited to get back and do another moot together. Um, uh, so definitely wanted to... Um, uh, I, I definitely wanted to uh, uh, make sure everyone was invited to that. The uh, theme of this year's Middle Moot is hope, actually. So it's particularly relevant uh, to uh, uh, to our discussions here um, because uh, we're getting to the point. Maybe we'll get to it tonight. Maybe we'll get to it next week uh, in which Tolkien introduces the difference, uh, the, 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 the distinction between the two different kinds of hope. Um, so that's, uh, I definitely wanted to, uh, invite you guys to look into that. The, they've extended the, the call for papers. The call for papers, uh, will go through the 15th of September. Um, so you still got a couple weeks uh, for that. Definitely encourage you if you've got a, uh, a proposal, um, for a, a paper to present, uh, or something else that you would like to do, you know, uh, definitely, I'm sure they would be open to suggestions. So, um, uh, it's going to be, um, it's going to be a lot of fun. So I'm, I'm very much looking forward to middle moot. Uh, and I'm hoping to say I'm wearing, I'm wearing my, uh, Tolkien society of Kansas city shirt tonight, uh, to, uh, celebrate. They'll be, uh, uh, hosting, uh, the event there again. So, um, awesome. Anyway, just wanted to make sure to invite, that's my announcement this week. And the, the observation that I wanted to make is that, Today is September 2nd, uh, which means that today is the 47th anniversary of Tolkien's death. Uh, Tolkien died on September 2nd, uh, 1973. Um, and uh, so it's just, just it kind of struck me earlier this evening, um, the date, and um, that, you know, 
we're going to be here talking about, uh, uh, you know, some of his writings about uh, humans, death and hope uh, here tonight uh, on his uh, on his death day. So um, it just sort of struck me as kind of particularly poignant. I think that uh, reading the Athrobeth together is a really particularly good way, I think, uh, to sort of mark uh, 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 the day of his death. Um, but with that observation that I just wanted to mention in passing, uh, let us jump back into the text and see how much further we can get. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yana says, what are you talking about? That was yesterday. Yeah. For you, Yana, for you is yesterday. Still, still today for us here. Um, yeah, there we go. Oh, Carrie, it's your 25th wedding anniversary today. So there you go. More hope. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's excellent. Yeah, my uh, my wife and I are at twenty. We're we're at twenty three this year, so we're getting there. We're getting there. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I agree with David Atley. Many happy returns. Absolutely. All right. So, uh, we were just sort of starting to ask, uh, what is the uh, point of human beings, right? As the the mystery of humanity. It's one of the things that I think is. One way to characterize this question, I talked about, you know, last time about how Tolkien has shifted from his earlier days when he was definitely right. You know, it was mostly about the sense of loss that we, the lesser latecomer race, you know, have in uh, living in a world uh, that the elves have left or at least left to our vision. Right. Um uh, so, you know, it was always very much about, you know, we poor, weak and clumsy latecomers, uh, uh, you know, walking in the footsteps and uh, finding the relics left behind by the great race of the old days. That was always sort of the essence, and I think, of the mythology uh, of Tolkien's world. Um, and he seems to be confronting here a very important question, which is what's... What is the point of humans, right? Why does Eru make them? Um, and and it's it's probably not just to have a second and inferior race to look up to the other race, uh, right? So this uh, here we're going to show uh, one of the places in which now his mythology is going to be coming into direct contact again. Uh, this is, we've seen this several times before uh, over the last several months, uh, coming into direct contact with Christian theology uh, and biblical tradition. Um, but he's going to do so in a kind of a different way than he's been doing before. And remember that in one sense, one way to um, characterize the question um, of, uh, you know, what's um, how to... One way to characterize the question of what he's doing in the Athrobeth, right, of like the fundamental question of the Athrobeth, is how do you reconcile the idea of death as the gift of Iluvatar with the Christian idea of death as the consequences of sin? Um, this was raised to him. You can see in his letters. This was raised to him by, uh, uh, you know, by by a, a priest of his acquaintance who is saying, you know, like. I think your story is great, but there's this there's this issue, right? How how do you um, 
you know, you're, you're kind of retelling the story. Now, his answer in the letter, I think, is wonderful. I really love, I've always loved his answer in the letter, um, you know, where he says, uh, you know, what of uh, God's punishments are not also gifts, which I think is a great answer to the question, but it also kind of dodges the question, right? I mean, I think that his, uh, his priestly correspondent was correct in saying there's a, there's a fundamental, um, there's a fundamental discrepancy here uh, between Christian doctrine and uh, and your mythology. Now, like that's not illegal, right? There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but we've seen, especially as Tolkien has been going through this process that we've been watching unfold in Morgoth's Ring, um, as he has been sort of reinvesting in Middle Earth and backwards in his mythology. Um, he has been wanting to bring it when, when he has been making philosophical and metaphysical and theological changes uh, to the way the world, you know, of the Silmarillion works. He's been making it in ways that bring it um, into contact, closer into contact uh, with uh, with Christian theology. Uh, that's uh, what has kind of led him directly into the orc problem, right? As we've talked about quite a bit already. Um, so watch what happens here. Um, this, uh, this comes in, so that this passage begins in response. Um, Finrod is still kind of probing this idea of like, you know, like, are, are you really sure, Andreth, that, you know, humans were born not to die, like that that was the original plan for humans. Uh, and he he very cautiously suggests, right, um, you know, and he, he says, uh, you know, you'll probably say not so, uh, you know, that this is not the case. But doesn't it make sense to think that perhaps this idea that humans were originally intended not to die is one which has its root in, in envy, right? That you had met others of the Avari, so surely humans had noticed that the elves lived on and on and did not die. Uh, and so did, you know, is it possible that the idea is sort of rooted um, in envy? In that way, and he's, he's like, but I, I know you're going to say that, that, that that's not so. But, you know, it's it's like he's saying, I got to ask. Right. I mean, it's, it's a logical conclusion. Uh, what would you say to that? Not so. I say, indeed, answered Andreth. We may have been mortal when first we met the elves far away. Or maybe we were not. Our Lord does not say, or at least none that I have learned. But already we had our lore and needed none from the elves. We knew that in our beginning we had been born never to die. And by that, my lord, we meant born to life everlasting, without any shadow of any end. Then have the wise among you considered how strange is the true nature that they claim for the Atani? said Finrod. Is it so strange? said Andreth. Many of the wise hold that in their true nature no living things would die. This is where I'm saying that Tolkien is coming into contact with Genesis here, right, with a, with a, a body of Christian tradition, right, which which theorizes that you know the the uh, the Garden of Eden story, right, is the story of life before death. That when the world was created, not just humans, right, but other things as well. That death entered into the world, not only for humans but for other things. Um, 
when Adam and Eve sent, right? Upon the like, that the fall of man changed things. And again, we've looked at this, the, 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 the question of the fall, right? And we've been comparing and contrasting at some points, uh, the fall of the traditional doctrine of the fall of man uh, with the marring of Arda by Milcor, right? We've been looking at some of the ways in which, you know, he's, 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 I, I say he is to some extent, uh, uh, kind of reconciling Middle Earth and his mythology more uh, with Christian mythology, but he's not just weaving it in entirely, right? We've we've seen some of those fundamental differences uh, between the, the 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 traditional idea of the fall of man and uh, the idea of the marring of Arda uh, by Melkor, as we've said. But um, her concept here sounds like it's very similar to this Christian tradition that according to and what Andreth says of human lore uninfluenced, she insists by elvish lore, right? This is not something they learned from elves. This is not a story they developed in response to meeting elves before they ever met elves. They had this lore already and their lore said that humans were born to life everlasting without any shadow of an end. Um, and that many of the wise hold that in their true nature, no living things would die. Death is alien. Death is an aberration. Death is a consequence of corruption, right? And in like the, if everything had gone exactly without marring, right? Without any uh, alteration from Eru's original plan, Nothing would decay. Nothing would die. Death is wrong. You know, just sort of capital W wrong. And remember, that's one of the things the Valar were debating, right, about the nature of death. Now, uh, Finrod has earlier on in this discussion basically articulated the point of view that emerged from the discussion of the Valar, right, which is that Death is does actually seem to be part of the way things are, right? You know, the, uh, the the marring affects things, right? But but the mere separation of you know death as defined as the separation of the Hroa and the Thea, that is theoretically possible and would always have been theoretically possible, um, and so therefore is not itself logically a consequence it, it, it you know perhaps it has been um you know tainted right and certainly attitudes towards it have been affected uh but the concept the 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 sort of i don't know what act itself of death uh is part of the original plan so finrod has already said that right and so she is here articulating a fundamentally um a fundamentally different things uh thing now david oh man you are right about this david says one of the things i really like about these later writings is the subtlety of tolkien's thought there is no obvious right party in these debates you're so correct about that you know david the other story that um really strikes me about that uh in that same way that i always think of, i always think that same thing when i'm reading it uh and that's um aldarion and arendis his numenor story which was again one of the stories written here late uh, in, uh, uh, in, in this sort of part of his life. Um, and that always strikes me in that story too. Like whenever there's a, a fight, right. Whenever the, and because there are lots of fights, there are lots of, uh, interpersonal, uh, 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 disagreements, right. In that story. And 
every time, like no matter who is talking, I'm always like, yeah, boy, this person is exactly right and has a lot of real makes a really good points. And then the other person responds and I'm like, oh, no, but that's really true, too. Um, absolutely. <laughs> I am always thinking that in that story. Uh, and um, uh, and and these. Uh, uh, but I agree this this uh, in this story, we can see it very much. And in some ways, of course, that is an interesting like interpersonal and marriage story, right? Um, but here, um, what we're seeing is he does, neither, neither one of his characters here is just like, you know, a, a stalking horse, right? Ne- neither one of them is, uh, is, is, is just a straw man, um, designed to, you know, set up the, the, um, the, you know, insight and wisdom of the one, the, the, the side that he's trying to articulate. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Anyway, but so let's keep going. So, but now, but notice. So here's the the last point I want to make here before I read the second half of the passage. Notice Finrod's the angle of Finrod's question, right? Finrod he does not doubt them, right? And, and this is something that is very characteristic of Finrod throughout this. He shows her consistent respect when she is telling him. That according to human lore, they believe this. He never at any point says, come on, hogwash, right? Or what do you know? Or like, what on earth could your lore even be based on? He never patronizes her. He never looks down at her. He never, um, uh, he never simply doubts her or says, I don't believe your li-. I think like, you know, he never pats her on the head. You know, he never says, look, you know, come on. Like, what are we talking? Can we stop it with the human lore thing? Like, seriously. Um, uh, he never, um, uh, he never goes there, right? He never sounds like that at all. And so when she says this, when she says things like this, but already we had our lore and needed done from the elves, he's like, okay, all right. Um, I believe you. Um, and I'm willing to listen. I'm willing to 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 learn from this uh, and see what happens, right? And and but he is but he is inquiring, right? The one thing that he is one of the things that he is there, there are a couple things that he's kind of bringing to the table in this discussion here. One, uh, and we looked at that at the very end of class last time, uh, was relationship with the Valar, right? You know, I kind of did used to hang out with the people who knew Iluvatar personally and made the world, right? So I kind of do have some fairly confident, authoritative knowledge about some of these things, right? Um, That's one angle that he often takes. Though, again, he doesn't just pull rank. He could do that here, right? He could be like, okay, you've got your, like, little tribal lore versus, you know my teaching straight from Manway, so I'm going to go with ours and not yours, no offense, right? He, he could totally say that. It's, it wouldn't even be unreasonable for him to say that, but he doesn't do that, right? Um, but the other thing that he does do, so, but, uh, you know, but there are some things that he is very firm on, right, um, based on that authority. The second thing that he does is this, right? And that is, okay, you have lore, right? Fine. But let's think this through, right? You have lore. What you don't have is a is a is a tradition of philosophy, right? You don't 
the humans don't have they 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 preserve this lore. But have you really thought about thought it through? You know, have you really thought in the abstract about what this means and what this implies? Right. Have you considered how strange is the true nature that they claim for the Atani? Right. Again, he doesn't say what you're saying is hogwash, but he's saying if that is true, then there are some very serious philosophical ramifications. Have you thought about those? Have you considered those? Let's let's talk about those. And she clearly hasn't. Is it so strange? Right. I, many of the wise hold that in their true nature, no living things would die. In that the Eldar would say that they err, said Finrod. That's probably the most forceful disagreement he's done, right? To us, your claim for men is strange and indeed hard to accept for two reasons. And notice neither one of which is going to be because y'all are a bunch of ignorant, unwashed, you know, uh, 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 you know, uh, benighted people from inland who have never met the Valar. Like, that's not one of his two reasons. Uh, there are two reasons. Uh, why what the, what you claim for men is strange and hard to accept. You claim, if you fully understand your own words, to have had imperishable bodies, not bounded by the limits of Arda, and yet derived from its matter and sustained by it. Remember, he's already done the slow-footed hunter thing, right? And remember what we've been talking about over the past few months, the stuff that goes back to the laws and customs among the Eldar, Right? The bodies, the Hroa of the Eldar, are very far from unchangeable, right? Uh, you know, just um, life everlasting without any shadow of any end is not the experience of the Eldar, apart from the fact that they have much more than the shadow of an end, as he's just recently explained, right? Life going on beyond Arda without end is very much not the experience of, uh, of the Eldar. Or, I mean... They had, none of them have experienced it yet, but again, it's not their framework, right? Um, but also, their bodies aren't like that, right? So seriously, like, your bodies are imperishable, were meant to be imperishable. Like, they just keep going on. Not even bounded by the limits of Arda itself. So you're made from the physical matter of Arda, but like, your little chunk of physical matter is going to go on when the whole rest of matter goes away? That doesn't make sense. This is why it's hard to accept. And you claim also, though this you may not have perceived, to have had Roar and Fear that were from the beginning out of harmony. Yet harmony of Roa and Fear is, we believe, essential to the true nature unmarred of all the incarnate, the Miroanwi as we call the children of Eru. By the way, I was so happy the first time I read this passage because I had been looking for a long time for a word, like a collective uh, thing to call the elves and men together, right? Um, and uh, incarnates, you know, the incarnate. Yeah, okay, great. There's a category for them, so that's really good. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Matt, Matt says, <clears throat> I can hear the words of my British graduate advisor. You just need to sit down and really think about this for a while. <laughs> it does sound like a very graduate advisor kind of uh, thing to say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Good. Uh, okay. So these are his problems, right? His objections 
are not, you know, based on prejudice, not based on a low opinion of what humans could know anyway. But he says, I, I have two reasons that I have, hard, you know, two, two philosophical reasons why it's hard to accept. One, the whole imperishable, but how could your body be uh, live beyond Arda, which it's made of, right? And secondly, this business about the harmony of the Hroa and Fea. But Finrod, we need to know more about that. The first difficulty I perceive, said Andreth, and to it our wives have their own answer. The second, as you guess, I do not perceive. Do you not, said Finrod? Then you do not see yourselves clearly. But it may often happen that friends and kinsmen see some things plainly that are hidden from their friend himself. Now, we, Eldar, are your kinsmen, and your friends also, if you will believe it. And we have observed you already through three lives of men, with love and concern and much thought. Of this, then, we are certain without debate, or else all our wisdom is vain. The Fear of men, though close akin to the Fear of the Quendi, are yet not the same. For strange as we deem it, we see clearly that the Fear of men are not as are ours, confined to Arda, nor is Arda their home. Can you deny it? Now, we, Eldar, do not deny that ye love Arda and all that is therein, and so far as ye are free from, insofar as ye are free from the shadow, maybe even as greatly as do we, yet otherwise. So you love it just as much, but you love it differently than we do. Each of our kindreds perceives Arda differently and appraises its beauties in different mode and degree. How shall I say it? To me, the difference seems like that between one who visits a strange country and abides there a while, but need not, and one who has lived in that land always and must. To the former, all things that he sees are new and strange, and in that degree, lovable. To the other, all things are familiar, the only things that are his own, and in that degree, precious. Okay. So, Andreth acknowledges the first problem. And she's like, okay, yeah, I get the first problem, the whole how could your body survive the, you know, the world uh, from which they're made. Yeah, we have an answer to that, but let's move on to the second one, right? So we'll come back to that one, right? Because she's going to give a response to that. Um, so this is his, Finrod's attempt to explain what he says is the disharmony between the Hroar, the bodies and the spirits, the, the Fear and the Hroar of men. Um, and to try to capture this, he tries to characterize what they have observed about the human spirit, right? Um, that humans aren't related to the world, aren't related to Arda, in the same way that elves are. Now, um, uh, David uh, asks, are we meant to take Finrod's perception as bedrock truth? Might he or they be mistaken? I don't think so. Um, he, um, he doubles down on this pretty hard, right? Um, uh, where is it? Um, uh, Right. We um, of this, then we are certain without debate or else all our wisdom is vain. That's um, 
he's kind of pushing off all of his philosophical chips into the middle of the table right there. Right. So I, 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 yes, I think that we're supposed to trust that. Um, uh, and this is the kind of thing in a sense that the elves might be expected to notice. Right. Um, they have observed human beings for three lives of men. They have watched three lives of human beings, uh, you know, grow, grow old and die. Uh, and this is the pattern that they have observed, um, or else all their wisdom is vain. So I, I think, I think we're supposed to, we're supposed to accept that. And the difference Arda is not the home of men. They are strangers to it. They love it. They love Arda. They don't want to leave Arda. And it's true that as, remember, she had already characterized death uh, as going off into the darkness, not knowing, right, what was to come, having no assurance. Um, she's already characterized it that way. Right. And so that's how they feel about it. You know, he's not trying to be like, come on, don't you just a little bit really kind of want to die? Right. No, like he's not questioning that. But what he is saying is the quality of your relationship with the world around you is different than the quality of the relationship of the Quendi with the world around them. And he gives this analogy. Right. You are like visitors in a foreign country who love it. Right. Who, you know, who. You know, to the former, all that he sees are new and strange. And in that degree, all things that he sees are new and strange and in that degree lovable. He loves them because they're strange and cool and awesome. Um, and he he loves it and he stays there. Right. He abides there in that foreign country. Right. For a while anyway. But he doesn't have to remember. Right. Like he's he's just visiting. Right. Um, he's not stuck there. The other person who has always lived in the same country and cannot possibly leave it to the other thing, to, to that person, all things are familiar. The only things that are his own and in that degree, precious. Um, Yeah, so Devorah asks the very sensible question. Um, how could they observe that? How could they observe... How could they have observed that from the outside? It's not like it would be obvious on first uh, glance, right? I mean, that's why Devorah, he emphasizes this is only by, by careful observation over the course of more than a century so far. Um that couple centuries, I think, are pretty close to it already by this time. Um, it's only over the course of a couple centuries that they have made observations and put together what they have seen. They have come to this conclusion after many observations. Um, and the way that they're... Um, the way that they're observing this, they're observing the quality of the love that humans have for the world around them. Um, it's, it's different. Let me, let's go on. Cause you're going to talk more about this. 
If you mean that men are the guests, said, And said Andreth, you have said the word, said Finrod, that name we have given to you. Lordly as ever, said Andreth. But even if we be but guests in a land where all is your own, my lords, as you say, tell me what other land or things do we know? Now, Andreth makes with the snark again in response to this, right? This, of course, is one of the names that elves have for men, the guests, right? Um, and, uh, and he's like, yeah, that's, that's totally why we call you that, right? This is what, in fact, we have observed. Now, Andreth's snarky response is totally understandable, right? Notice how she has always heard that, right? That the elves are saying, we are the lords and masters of this place, and we but tolerate your presence in it, right? You are welcome to remain here because we're gracious and good, right? Um, that's how she has always heard that. That's what she always thought they meant when they called men the guests. She thought that in calling them the guests, the elves were essentially questioning their right to be there, right? Or emphasizing that they only existed, right? Or only were tolerated to exist, uh, permitted to exist because, you know, the elves deemed that it should be okay for them to do so, right? I mean, um, uh, we are, but guests in a land where all is your own, my lords. Um, but then notice her final, um, um, uh, <laughs> Matt says, still better than being called the stunted people. I hear that. Um, uh, but um, notice how she turns it at the end there, right? Um, Even if we be but guests in a land where all is your own, my lords, as you say, uh, or as you say, right? Tell me what other land or things do we know, right? So if we're just guests, Mr. Smarty Pants, um, like, wh where's our home then? You know, we have never known any other land but this. So to Andreth, this seems like a strange... And uh, Devor, I'm not trying to uh, duck, duck your question. We'll come back to it. But again, he's going he's gonna to give us some more. So better to, better to answer this more from the text. Um, uh, anyway, so uh, notice, notice where, how she's responding there. He talked as if... Remember his analogy, right? We're like people who have born, we've been born here and lived here all our lives. And you're like people who are visiting from a foreign country. And she's like, what foreign country? Right? We've all, guess what? Like, okay, we've not lived here as long as you, right? Our lives are shorter than yours, but all of the lives we've had, we've lived here. What on earth are you talking about? Right? Um, so that, you know, so she's, she's first snarkily pointing out how patronizing and superior uh, in her ears, right, is that label the guests. Uh, and secondly, uh, she's saying it's that's not that, you know, dude, that doesn't even make sense, right? That is not actually logical. Um, uh, yeah, Josiah, exactly. She didn't realize that the elves did not mean the humans are their guests, the elves' guests. They are the guests of Arda itself. Exactly. That's what he's trying to explain here. Her misunderstanding is understandable, right? Uh, it is not shocking uh, that she should misunderstand uh, that. But it is still, nevertheless, a misunderstanding, right? Um, uh He's not saying you're our guests. We are the hosts and you are the guests. That's not the point at all. Um, uh, 
tell me what other land or things do we know, she says snarkily. Nay, tell me, said Finrod, for if you do not know, how can we? But do you know that the Eldar say of men that they look at no thing for itself, that if they study it, it is to discover something else, that if they love it, it is only, so it seems, because it reminds them of some other dearer thing. Yet with what is this comparison? Where are those other things? We are both elves and men in Arda and of Arda, and such knowledge as men have is derived from Arda, or so it would appear. Whence then comes this memory that ye have with you, even before ye begin to learn? It is not of other regions in Arda from which you have journeyed. We also have journeyed from afar. But were you and I to go together to your ancient homes east away, I should recognize the things there as part of my home. But I should see in your eyes the same wonder and comparison as I see in the eyes of men in Beleriand who were born here. So, Devorah, that there he gets at it a little bit. The elves see in the eyes of men wonder and comparison. Wonder and comparison. Wonder. Wonder. Why should they experience wonder at the world around them? It's natural, right? He suggests that the elves don't experience wonder in the same way that humans do. And comparison. Comparison. Loving things not for themselves, but only because it so it appears to the elves. It's as if it reminds them of something else, something else that's even dearer. They will love a place not because, not for the sake of that place, but as if their love for it is like the love. Again, the elves are themselves making comparisons here, right? It is as if it reminds them of something else, right? They don't, they are not completely at home there in the same way that the elves are at home there with there being Beleriand, being Middle-earth, being Arda itself, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Josiah says it's like the elves experience genuine platonic anamnesis. Uh, it's, 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 it's like it. No, Josiah, help me, because I'm not going to define that. I want to define that term for folks, and I'm I'm not. I'm probably not going to do it uh, uh, carefully. I was also thinking about Plato, Josiah. Um, did you get the Plato reference? Um, you probably did, as you're thinking about it. Um, the um, uh, whence then comes this memory that ye have with you, even before ye begin to learn, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so Yana, um, you're right. 
that with the human beings being in the world for a shorter amount of time, they have less time to discover things. And so like a, a greater percentage of their lives are going to be filled with discovery, right? Seeing things for the first time. Um, whereas that's going to be less true for the elves. That's true. But see, that is, that's not what Finrod's talking about. And this is again, why I think it's important that he is saying that his, his uh, conclusions here are drawn from observing many men over multiple lives of men, over multiple generations of men, right? This is, this is not, this is not just that. And this is why notice, I, 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 I think this is closely parallel to what he says there about, it's not about like regions of Arda in which you've journeyed, right? Um, if we have some sense that you're comparing it to some other place, well, the first logical answer is, well, maybe it's the place you guys came from, right? Because you're, you're new here in Beleriand, and even those who were born here in Beleriand, maybe maybe humans carry with them some kind of ancestral memory of Eastaway, where they came from, right, of Hildorian. Um, and he says, yeah, no, that can't be it, because, you know, we, we traveled, too, Um that we we've we came from Quivian and and I, that we don't have the that same experience that same that same thing, um, yeah yeah Josiah exactly the idea that all learning this is uh, anamnesis uh, that all learning is recollection or realization of innate knowledge. Um, I think Josiah that when he is referring to. I think he is Tolkien, I mean, not Finrod, uh, is characterized, he is, okay, so, sorry, let me back up and explain anamnesis and what Josiah is talking about a little bit more. Uh, this is a this is an idea from Plato, basically that uh, uh, Plato told this, like, sort of parable, uh, and I don't, I don't remember, uh, Josiah, maybe you can remind me of which dialogue, dialogue it's in. I'm forgetting. Um, but basically the, you know, the, the platonic idea or sort of theory is that the human soul is before birth. The human soul is like taken on a guided tour of the cosmos, um, and shown and taught all things. Um, and then it's born. And when it's born, it forgets it all. So the process of learning is not a process of the introduction of knowledge. It's the recovery of knowledge. Uh, you don't learn, you remember, essentially. That's a simplification, but that's kind of the core idea. Um, so that's that's the platonic idea uh, that he's talking about. So and, and that's what I hear Tolkien through Finrod alluding to, pre-Plato, right? Um, whence then comes this memory that you have with you even before you begin to learn, right? Before you know anything, when you're born as babies, apparently you seem to bring with you some memory of something else, right? Now, he, it's not exactly the same thing uh, as what Plato is describing. He's not saying that all knowledge uh, is uh, is memory, right? Um, but it, I was, I, it made me think of that uh, there too. Um, it's in, it's in the, the, the Phaedo? Okay, yeah, thanks, Josiah. Like I said, it's... It's been a long time since I've read Plato, uh, but uh, um, and that was never one I studied very carefully because it's it's not one of the ones that they knew in the Middle Ages. So, uh, but but yeah yeah thanks. Um, anyway, okay, so so Yana, getting back to your observation, it's not or your question, it's not just about 
the percentage of the time they spend discovering things and therefore experiencing wonder, right? It's the quality of the wonder they experience. Um, were I to go, were you and I to go together to your ancient homes east away, I should recognize the things there as part of my home. He's never seen them before. Finrod hasn't, right? Would he experience wonder in seeing them? No, not in the same way. Not, it's not how much wonder. It's the, when he, he goes to see them, it would be satisfying. He would love them. It's like, I don't know, you know, I, I, no, I can't really compare this to anything in human experience because he's trying, Tolkien is trying to describe something that is outside of human experience by definition, right? Um, it's not like refreshing. It's not like rediscovering something. It's not recovery. We'll come to that in just a moment, right? Uh, pointedly, not recovery. Um, it's not wonder. He wouldn't experience wonder, satisfaction, love. He would recognize it as part of my home, a part of his home that he's never seen before. Would he be delighted? Absolutely, he would be delighted. Just as, just as the Mirkwood elves are always delighted at the splash and sound of barrels falling into the river, right? That's how elves are, right? It's not wonder. It's not wonder. It's joy. It's satisfaction. It's delight. He would experience those things upon seeing Hildorian, right? Um, but he wouldn't be comparing it to anything else. And he wouldn't be experiencing wonder. He wouldn't be saying, wow, I never knew, I never imagined. He would be saying, ah, yes, this too is my home, right? I don't know, like, I always knew that something like this was, right? This feels right and good. That seems to be how he would respond in seeing something that we would call wonderful, right, for the first time. But not, wow, like, holy cow, who would ever have imagined this? This is incredible, right? Notice how we talk like that, right? You, you go somewhere to the first, you know, for the first time. The first time you see, like, you know, the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls or, you know, uh, some of those, like, amazing sites that I saw when I was in Iceland last year or, you know, things like that. Um, you know, and you, uh, you say, like, uh, you know, oh, man, this is incredible. Right? It's just incredible. Um, that's not how the elves feel, right? They would never not believe it, right? Um, they would, they would never not believe it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, now I hear you, Yana, about the idea that a lack of wonder, of wonder seems sad, right? It would be for a human. It would be right. Um, this is where, again, what I commend to you to imagine in the place of wonder. 
uh, is delight. Delight and satisfaction. The kind of delight that the Tralalalali elves, the kind of delight that makes you want to sing that Tralalalali song uh, pretty much every night, right? That is the experience that the elves have instead of wonder. Let's keep looking at some of this. Um, uh, yeah, and I would say, by the way, I'm uh, I'm going back to the Hobbit here uh, in my uh, in, in for, you know for my sort of illustrations of this. I don't know. I don't know the extent to which what he is describing here, to what extent it perfectly fits with the Lord of the Rings. This is post-Lord of the Rings, right? This is after the fact. And it seems pretty clear how, I mean, I think that we've been able to see pretty clearly how Tolkien's own ideas have been developing and growing and changing over the course of this process, this process of trying to reconcile the mythology to the Lord of the Rings. So on the one hand, the Lord of the Rings and the perspective of the Lord of the Rings and the philosophy of the Lord of the Rings is kind of like the standard to which the mythology is trying is, is being fitted, right? But at the same time, he's also, it's the, uh, that process is also kind of enriching backwards, I think. And so I think we can find some ways in which there are things in the Lord of the Rings that don't really fit this, right? Where you can see some of Tolkien's ideas that predate this kind of conception of the difference between elves and men, right? So I don't think, I don't think it's true that we could go back to the Lord of the Rings and find this stuff illustrated perfectly there, because I don't know that it would be perfectly illustrated. I even kind of suspect we could easily find contradictions to this, because again, I think that this is something that has grown in his mind very much since he wrote The Lord of the Rings. Um, it would be an interesting kind of comparison to see. Um, but, um, but yeah, yeah, I, um, uh, I don't, And certainly, I would be very strongly opposed to anyone who tried to convince me that, you know, like this passage is wrong, right? Or like we're misunderstanding this passage on the evidence of what is said in the Lord of the Rings, right? That's, um, that wouldn't even, I wouldn't, I, I don't even, I wouldn't even accept that as a sensible thing to say necessarily um, because it, it is palpable how his ideas are changing. Um, uh, I mean, goodness, even just go back, go back and read the beginning of the annals, right? In this volume and compare it to where he is right now, right? I mean, again, his ideas are growing and maturing before our eyes in this volume. Um, and, uh, to, so to say that like the stuff that he wrote 10 years before this, 20 years before this, uh, when he was, you know, first starting to write the Lord of the Rings, that's, I mean, yeah, no way. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, uh, 
Chris, that's just what I was thinking. Someone else was referring to this before. Uh, maybe it was you um, about um, the um, the the love of the hobbits for their land. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, it doesn't. That does not partake much of this uh, uh, sort of discussion of comparison, right? Uh, necessarily, but um, yeah, yeah, Karita, I was thinking the same thing too. Um, I can't say I also can't say that Legolas doesn't experience wonder, right? Again, I think that he hadn't. Again. I don't want to lean on that too heavily. I don't want to be like, so yeah, wonder is totally like elves are anti-wonder. Like it's, it, one could go way too far in that, right? The point is that he's he's making a distinction and quite a subtle distinction between, you know, so if you imagine, right, like Finrod is here inviting Andreth to imagine. Imagine an elf and a human traveling together, seeing an amazing place that neither one of them has ever seen before, Right. Uh, even if it's her, like the ancestral home of her people and she's never been there, um, you know, so they're seeing something like striking and beautiful and 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 uh, uh, and and everything else. You know, I'm not saying that the elf would be like, yeah, I can take it or leave it. Right. It looks like pretty much everywhere else. <laughs> like, that's not the point. They would expect both of them, both the human and the elf would experience a strong reaction. Right. The point that Finrod is making is that the reactions aren't exactly the same. They can even be mistaken for each other. They're similar to each other, but they're not the same exact thing. It's not wonder. Again, they wouldn't say like, wow, it's incredible. No, the elf would believe it, right? Um, uh, it would resonate with the elf he would be learning a new thing. He would be uh, seeing a thing for the first time in Korea here. I am thinking about, you know, Legolas and the Ents and Fangorn, right? Um, he would be having an experience where he is experiencing delight in something for the first time. And yet again, Karita, think of the difference between Legolas's reaction to the Ents and Theoden's reaction to the Ents. Theoden is like, whoa, children's stories come true. That's incredible, right? So are there really shepherds of the trees? Amazing, right? Legolas has a strong response too, but it's not that response, right? It's different from that response. I think, again, I don't want to try to project what he's saying here all the way back in that because I don't think that that's quite fair. As I said, you know, the one was written 20 years before he was working this through. But still, you know, uh, it, it's I, I think even there we can begin to see sort of the shadow of um, of a, a distinction, right? The kind of distinction. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Karita, you're so right. Uh, uh, not only is it possible that, of course, Legolas is an exception to the rule, but of course, Karita, we have to remember that he is uh, the strange elf. Right. I mean, that's how he's introduced to us at the Council of Elrond, after all. So, you know, we were it's not like we weren't warned. Right. You know, we can't say that. Um, 
Yeah. <laughs> anyway, it is sort of funny to think of Leg of Legolas as an eccentric. Uh, it is. It is. Um, uh, yes. It. It. it uh, Matt. It does mean. I make that. That was just a joke on my part. Sorry. I was kind of crossing the streams there and making a joke. But no. Yeah. Um, anyway. Anyway. Um, uh, yes. Yes. Okay. Um, let's. Uh, let's keep going because he's not done. This is where I found the wonder thing got uh, sort of most um, kind of mind-blowing. And, Devorah, this comes a little bit closer, maybe, to answering your question, I think. Um, here he's going to give a more concrete example of the kind of observation they have made that has led them to the conclusion they came to. You speak strange words, Finrod, said, Ath said Andreth, which I have not heard before. Yet my heart is stirred as if by some truth that it recognizes, even if it does not understand it. But fleeting is that memory, and it goes ere it can be grasped, and then we grow blind. And those among us who have known the Eldar, and maybe have loved them, say on our side, there is no weariness in the eyes of the elves. And we find that they do not understand the saying that goes among men, too often seen is seen no longer. And they wonder much that in the tongues of men the same word may mean both long-known and stale. We have thought that this was only so because the elves have everlasting life and undiminished vigor. Grown-up children, we, the guests, sometimes call you, my lord. And yet, and yet, if nothing in Arda for us holds its savor long, and all fair things grow dim, what then? Does it not come from the shadow upon our hearts? Or do you say that it is not so? But this was ever our nature, even before the wound? Recovery. You will remember, most likely, but I'll tell you again in case you've forgotten, or uh, for those of you who don't know on fairy stories, Tolkien's essay, he said that there are three uses of fantasy, right? Um, escape, recovery, and consolation. Recovery is what he's describing here. This is a, an important phenomenon. One of the functions that fantasy has is that it is a fact. It is a plainly observable fact that to human beings, in the human perspective, the world grows stale. Find something that you love. Find something so beautiful it takes your breath away. Move there, right? You know, build a house right in the middle of it and soon you won't even see it anymore, right? You won't even notice it. Um, that is what the human experience is. Things grow stale. Things grow trite. Things grow familiar. Um, once we have uh, taken them and put them in our dragon's hoard, we cease to value them any longer. It's just part of the nature of human experience, and this is one of the th points of fantasy. One of the things that fantasy is good for um, is that it cleans your windows, right? It helps you to see things again for the first time. So, by, and this of course is not the comparison that he makes, um, by reading about Ents, you see trees again for the first. You go out into your yard and you look at that tree that you have looked at as a feature of your yard uh, for so many years and all of a sudden you are aware of it as an independent living and growing thing 
on its own for the first time in years, perhaps ever, right? I know I have had that experience with trees as a consequence of reading both about Treebeard and about Old Man Willow, right? Um, that is recovery. Um, and humans need it. It is an inveterate nature. So, Yana, this is the other side of the wonder business, right? Yes, humans experience wonder. But they also do this, right? Wonder fades. Wonder fades. Wonder is temporary. And the more times you go, you know, does um, when you go to, you know, the, uh, you know, the Grand Canyon or, uh, you know, Niagara Falls or whatever for the first time, um, does your tour guide experience the same wonder that you do? Probably not, right? Probably not. Um, your tour guide, you know, the person like leading your little hike down the trail in the uh, in the, the 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 Grand Canyon is just punching a time clock, right? This is this is this is the this is another day at the office for them, right? Um, and so would it be for you if you lived there, right? If every day you took a hike down the mountains. Now, again, that's not to say that we can never recapture it ever, right? That there are yes, there are things that can like help at least temporarily, to kind of stimulate it. And of course, we can work ourselves into that. Like we can, through mental discipline, right, um, work, you know, train ourselves to try to take things for granted less, right? Um, uh, you know, you have to uh, learn to train yourself to appreciate things and to continue appreciating things after they've become familiar, <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing because Carrie, all of a sudden I'm remembering comments about your 25th wedding anniversary and me being married for 23 years. Uh, those of us like Carrie and I who have been married for more than 25 years, more than 20 years, will know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, you know, being married for more than 20 years is not about, you know, uh, being head over heels in love. Uh, like you were, you know, when the first, you know, six months of your relationship with your spouse for 25 years, like it's not, that's, that's not the experience, right? Uh, if you have a successful marriage, it's because you have trained yourself to this kind of discipline, but that's the point, right? That's the point is that we have to, the natural impulse of human too often seen is seen no longer. That's the truth. That's how humans do things. And again, that's the flip side of wonder. That's the flip side of wonder. Elves, not only they don't experience wonder, their experience is, is, is not less than that. It's different than that. But they also don't need recovery. Um, she immediately connects this concept that Finrod is suggesting, the strange words that he's suggesting, this whole idea that humans don't really find themselves at home in Arda, that they're always comparing it, that, they, that they're always surprised at what they find for some reason in a way that seems strange uh, to, the, to the Quendi. Uh, and she's like, that's weird on the one hand, and yet it kind of, it feels right. Her heart is stirred as if by some truth that it recognizes, even if it does not understand it. See, Josiah, I'm right back to uh, Plato and Anamnesis again there. Um, uh And she says, we've noticed there's no weariness in the eyes of the elves. An elf 
who is doing a menial task in familiar surroundings, which he's done literally hundreds of thousands of times before, will take the same delight in it that he took in it the first time he ever did it. Where humans don't do that, right? So she is saying she's reciprocating. So uh, again, so Devorah, I'm coming back now again to your question. This is the kind of thing... What just just as she's describing this, right? I've noticed that you guys you just don't get tired of stuff, right? I mean, again, like it these things which are super familiar, you're like, wow, look, isn't it wonderful? Like, well, yeah, it kind of is, right? But it's pretty normal, actually. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good. Yes, I don't want to get into this too much. Because um, it would be a digression, which I would, I'm keen to avoid, and it wouldn't necessarily include everybody. But yes, those of you who in this whole discussion are remembering uh, C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle, remembering Jules response to seeing the new Narnia, uh, and yes, <laughs> I'm not, not going to discuss it, but I'm just going to say, yes, you're right to remember that. Um, uh, Lewis was getting at some very similar things there. It, it is, in fact, all in Plato, uh, as he suggests. Um, uh, yeah, okay. So, um, yeah, Nancy, I agree. Elves are capable of weariness, but it's a different kind. They don't get tired of things. They don't just get sick of, they don't get bored in the same way, right? Uh, Nancy suggested, you know, perhaps it's more of a trauma symptom, right? Like Muriel. Yeah, absolutely. Muriel is weary, right? Because like her spirit has suffered and it needs to recover in the sense of getting better, right? It needs, she needs healing. Um, she didn't just get bored, right? Um, it's not ennui. It, ennui is what elves don't experience, right? They don't, uh, things are never tritely familiar. Familiarity, David, as you say, does not breed contempt, uh, among elves. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yes, James, exactly. That's why they can sing tra la la after living in the, in the valley for thousands of years. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, so... They, I love the grown-up children thing, right? Like that, they, they, to, in every sense, the elves are the older siblings, right? They're the older siblings in the sense that they got there first. They're older siblings in the sense that they individually live enormously longer, right? So, um, but yet the experience that Andreth describes the humans having is that they feel like the elves are immature, right? You're like grown-up children. Uh, you, I mean, you, you, the only humans who experience the world like elves are small children, right? Just taking con- and not just because they're experiencing wonder by seeing everything for the first time, right? 
um, it's a kind of, uh, I, I think of, um, GK Chesterton was so good on this. Um, when, uh, he says that like the, you know, the most, um, the most essentially sort of childlike, um, expression, childlike saying is do it again. Uh, you know, like that's the unweariness of the childlike spirit, right? That a child, if a child loves a story, it can never hear the story too often. You can tell it and then start at the beginning and tell it again, and they will enjoy it just as much the second time and the third and the fourth, right? Uh, you will grow weary of telling the story, of doing the thing, of throwing them in the air, whatever it is that the child is enjoying, you will grow weary of it long, long, long before they do, right? Um, in that sense, I think, is the sense in which, um, uh, in which, uh, um, and by the way, G.K. Chesterton brings this up in the context. Is this in, it's not in The Everlasting Man. I think it's in Orthodoxy. It is. Orthodoxy is what I'm remembering. Um, he, uh, uh, he brings this up in the context of saying basically that, uh, that, uh, that God is like that. He's like, that's why the sun rises and sets the same every day. Uh, because, uh, because every day God says, do it again. Uh, just like a child might. Um, but anyway, um, okay. So yeah, Josiah is remembering, uh, 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 Sam's perspective, right? Uh, there's elves and there's elves. Uh, some are somber and wise and others are merry as children. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, yes. Yes. Um, so, um, all fair things grow dim. She admits nothing in Arda hold for us holds its savor long, right? They do love Arda. As he said, we know, we elves know you love Arda. And maybe even as much as we do, but not the same way that we do. And she's like, you know what? Actually, yeah, you're right about that. Um, we do love Arda, but nothing holds its savor that long. All fair things grow dim for us. No, so, no, so she's conceded. Yes, she has conceded that they look at the world differently, that they experience the world differently. Um, she's not 100% sure about the whole memory of something else thing, though she does say, uh, my heart is stirred as if by some truth, that it recognizes even if it does not understand it, but fleeting is that memory and it goes there. It can be grasped. So like maybe, maybe it is, there is something like that, but we can't really grasp it. We don't really know it. Um, but notice where she gets to here. She's like, okay, yeah, we've, we've perceived this pattern, right? We've perceived that nothing holds its savor long for us and all fair things grow dim. Um, but, uh, you know, what then? We, they always assumed, they always concluded that it came as the, from the shadow upon their hearts. It was a sign. The fact that you need recovery shows that they've been corrupted, right? That the human spirit has gone wrong in some way. Um, and she says, do you say that it is not so, but this was ever our nature even before the wound? Notice where she's come to. If we uh, go back, sorry, here we go. If we go back a couple times, yeah, here we go. Um, 
have you considered how strange is the true nature they claim for the Atani? Right. Um, uh, let's see, where was I? Um, the second claim. You claim to have had Hroar and Fear that were from the beginning out of harmony. Right. Um, and instead of saying that's impossible, so will you admit now that you were wrong? He works through this and basically says it's it, it is clear to us that your Fear are different from our Fear. Right. Um, and it seems now that he has opened up the possibilities, opened up the potential. Right. Uh, of saying. Yeah, um, maybe your Fea and your Hroa is not joined in the same way that ours are, right? Um, do you say that it is not so, but this was ever our nature even before the wound? She's she's seeing it now. Wait a second. Is this, this is what you mean by saying that if what we say is true, our Fea and Hroa were not matching up? I say so indeed, answered Finrod. The shadow may have darkened your unrest, bringing swifter weariness and soon turning it to disdain. But the unrest was ever there, I believe. And if this is so, then can you not now perceive the disharmony that I spoke of? If indeed your wisdom had lore like to ours, teaching that the, that the Miroanwi are made of a union of body and mind, the Hroa and the Fea, or as we say in picture, the house and the indweller, for what is the death that you mourn but the severing of these two? And what is the deathlessness that you have lost but that the two should remain united forever? But what then shall we think of the union in man, of an indweller who is but a guest here in Arda and not here at home with a house that is built of the matter of Arda and must therefore, one would suppose, here remain. At least one would not hope for this house a life longer than Arda, of which it is a part. Yet you claim that the house too was immortal, do you not? I would rather believe that such a fea of its own nature would at some time of its own will have abandoned the house of its sojourn here, even though the sojourn might have been longer than is now permitted. Then death would, as I said, have sounded otherwise to you, as a release or return, nay, as going home. But this you do not believe, it seems? This is the doctrine of death as the gift of Iluvatar. This is what it means for death to be the gift of Iluvatar. Right? Uh, here's the Elvish doctrine, right? The Elvish doctrine put into the published Silmarillion, here explained by Finrod, right? This would make sense. If your fair are of a different kind, right? If your fair are of a different kind than ours, they don't really belong here. They're, I don't know where their home is, but it's not here in Arda, right? And that's why they experience wonder and why the wonder fades, right? And yeah, it gets darkened and twisted by the shadow, right? Swifter weariness and being turned to disdain, that wouldn't happen without the shadow, right? But the unrest is there anyway, right? So, okay, all right. So, so fine, we, um, uh, if your fear are different, 
your fair are not from here, and your Hroa is from here. Then we've got a, a visiting indweller in a different house. So he's like, that's weird already, right? But maybe it would make sense, right? Maybe it would make sense. Because then, surely, your original house was designed to die. Surely you were designed with, like, death was something Iluvatar intended for you. Not as a punishment, not as a, not as a terrible consequence, but as a good thing, as a release. Because your spirit was meant to be somewhere else, right? And so there's a sense in which, if, you know, there would be a sense in which your spirit was just chained in the body. This starting to sound familiar. Oh, Plato again. Uh, that's an, like that. One of the fundamental Platonic ideas is that the spirit is like the true thing, and the flesh are the the flesh are chains that weigh down the spirit. And the final release of the spirit from the body is a great gift. So Finrod says this to to Plato and you know to Socrates, and he's going to be like, "Absolutely, man, you got you nailed it, right? That is exactly how it's supposed to be, right?" Um, and uh, so notice he hears him very gently pushing back. He didn't say, "Look, this idea of yours totally out there, and you've got no authority for it, so let's just dismiss that, shall we?" He's worked around to saying. Here's an idea that makes sense based on everything we've observed, based on what I hear from you as well, right? What if instead, what if, what if you're wrong? What if humans were not intended for eternal life? What if they were intended just for longer life, maybe, right? Maybe what you're remembering, maybe the lore that's coming down to you is not like nothing, right? It's not wrong. Maybe you used to be longer lived, significantly longer lived than now. And so the memory of the shadow and the sense of loss and of deprivation and stuff, that's all legit. Like it's all, I'm not saying you're just, you know, making stuff up, but, um, but maybe you're misunderstanding the significance of it. Maybe it doesn't mean that you are meant to be immortal. Maybe it just meant that you lived, like you used to be more at peace within the house. You know, your indweller used to be more at peace in the house. But still, the end-dweller was meant to leave, was meant to go home. If this were the case, and this fits with elvish observation, right? That those elvish observations that he was willing to gamble his whole, you know, philosophical and, and interpersonal reputation on, right? Um, if this is true, this would make sense. And it would explain death to the elves, Right? This is the sense in which death would be the gift of Iluvatar. It is, he says, you know, your fea of its own nature would at some time of its own will have abandoned the house. Right? The human spirit would have eventually been set free, would have set itself free from the house in order to go home, in order to go to its real place. That's probably. And that's why I was saying death is not necessarily a bad thing, right? It would be a release from bondage, as it were, Josiah. Yes, it would. Exactly. Exactly. Um, 
I, Yana, I agree with you. I also don't see Socrates agreeing with anything right away. <laughs> You're totally right about that. I'm not saying Socrates wouldn't have a lot to say to Finrod about this, but uh, but I, I'm just saying that that seems to sort of fit the premise there. Um, Nay, I do not believe this, said Andrath, for that would be contempt of the body. And it is a thought of the darkness unnatural in any of the incarnate whose life uncorrupted is a union of mutual love. But the body is not an inn to keep a traveler warm for a night ere he goes on his way and then to receive another. It is a house made for one dweller only. Indeed, not only house, but raiment also. And it is not clear to me that we should in this case speak only of the raiment being fitted to the wearer rather than of the wearer being fitted to the raiment. Hogwash, she says. This is not that it, it's not the nice picture, Finrod, right? I, I hear you, but no, no. And notice her response here. Her response here is not, ah, no, that contravenes the lore of my people, right? No, she doesn't say that. She answers him on his ground, right? She says, no, philosophically, in fact, Finrod, by your philosophy, that doesn't make sense. Um, didn't you object to? my idea of the eternal life of humans based on the fact that it would imply that the Hroa and the Thea don't fit, right? Why now are you saying, we're cool with the idea of the Hroa and the Thea not fitting? She says, no, your idea of death being the gift of a Luvatar, that, that would mean the body and the spirit not fitting. That would mean that the Hroa and the Thea are not suited to each other. It would the inevitable conclusion of this is, as she says, contempt of the body. If we view our hroa, our bodies, our 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 our, our hroa, as merely chains, right? Just burdens, anchors tying us down to this world where we're not at home, and which kind of contains some nice things, but where we can't really be happy. You can only say, Finrod, that death is a gift in that way if you first concede that life is a punishment, <laughs> right? That life is, is uh, a burden, right? And that is a thought of the darkness, unnatural in any of the incarnate. We all... The life, the true life of all of the incarnate, of both of the incarnate races, is a union of mutual love. The Hroa and the Thea are combined in our union of mutual love. There is, no, There can be no sense in which the humans are merely saddled with this unfortunate anchor. It's not an inn to keep a traveler warm for a night. Notice how she she shifts the metaphor. It's less like a house. It's more like clothes, like raiment. Um, more like raiment in the sense that it's more personal, right? Again, it's not just like a house that any number of people can wander in and out of. It's clothes. It's your clothes, which aren't necessarily going to fit everybody else, right? Clothes that are tailored to you, right? That's a better metaphor for the body to the spirit than the uh, house and the indweller, right? Um, 
and she says, and of course, and in this case, it's not just that the raiment is fitted. To, it's not just that my clothes are tailored to my body. In the case of the Roa and the Fez, like, that's not a great, even that isn't a great analogy, because, of course, there it seems that the, the, the body is tailored to the clothes, at least as much as the clothes are tailored to the body. Again, it's a union, the Fea and the Roa, a union of mutual love, right? Um, okay, okay. Um, I hold then that it is not to be thought that the severance of these two could be according to the true nature of men. For were it natural for the body to be abandoned and die, but natural for the fea to live on, then there would indeed be a disharmony in man, and his parts would not be united by love. His body would be a hindrance at best, or a chain, an imposition indeed, not a gift. But there is one who imposes and who devises chains, and if such were our nature from the beginning, then we should derive it from him. But that, you, sh you say, should not be spoken. Oh, whoa. Um, I love this moment. Um, Andreth has uh, absolutely clobbered Finrod's argument here, right? Um, you keep telling me not to even say that Morgoth is lord of the world, right? Um, and yet, you're describing a circumstance. You're describing, you're saying that the essential and original nature of man is like something Melkor himself would devise. A chain, right? A burden. Um, uh, 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 you know, a burden imposed upon others, right? I agree, Matt. That is a complete mic drop moment right there uh, by Andreth. It is, uh, it is amazing. Alas, out in the darkness, men do say this nonetheless, but not the Atani as thou knowest, not now. I hold that in this we are as ye are, truly incarnates, and that we do not live in our right being and its fullness save in a union of love and peace between the house and a dweller. Wherefore, death, which divides them, is disaster to both. Death does not fit humans. Now, and remember, back in when the Valar were debating this and saying that it's, it's not just, death is not just a consequence of Ard and Mard, that was elves, right? Given that the Hroa remains here in Arda and a new Hroa can be constructed, right? Death is not a disaster to both the Hroa and the Fea. To the Hroa, yes, right? But the Hroa can, they can, they can, you know, they can get a new model. It's all right. Um, uh, so would, would death have been a theoretical possibility even in Arda unmarred? Remember the Valar's conclusion was yes, yes, that would have been a theor at least a theoretical conclusion, uh, uh, option there. Um, but with humans, if their fea leaves, if their fea, if the, if death, death, which is defined as the separation of the Hroa and the fea, if for humans, that means a permanent separation, a permanent severance of the union of love and peace, a destruction of the essence of humanity, right? The body and soul separated forever. Then it's a disaster. 
there's no like, oh, but it's kind of good, right? Yeah, no, it's not. Finrod's response is just amazing. Evermore you... Oh, and sorry, by the way, Josiah, I absolutely agree. Uh, uh, if as much as Socrates would have approved of Finrod's statement and uh, Andreth's, uh, she's taking a bunch of shots. Uh, chain is exactly the metaphor that Plato uses, that Socrates uses uh, to uh, describe the flesh, to describe the body. Um, so yeah, yeah, she's taking some serious shots at Socrates there. Anyway, not that she knows Socrates. Evermore you amaze my thought, Andreth, said Finrod. I love Finrod's response to this. For if your claim is true, then lo, a fea which is here but a traveler is wedded indissolubly to a hroa of Arda. To divide them is a grievous hurt, and yet each must fulfill its right nature without tyranny of the other. This, then, must surely follow. The fea, when it departs, must take with it the hroa. And what can this mean, unless it be that the fea shall have the power to uplift the hroa as its eternal spouse? and companion, into an endurance everlasting beyond air and beyond time. That's a shocking conclusion that Finrod has come to, right? But note how he got there. He got there by following the logic, right? He's agreeing with her. She's right. Her, his, her reasoning is correct. His reasoning... The traditional elvish teaching that death is a, the gift of Iluvatar to men, wrong. Wrong. Blind. Because they didn't understand. Andreth has corrected him, and he accepts that correction. And he follows the logic. If it's true, exactly, David, he doesn't refute her, he takes it further. If what you're, if, if this is what if, if what, if that's true, then here's what it means. The fea, when it departs, must take with it the hroa. And what can this mean unless it be that the fea shall have the power to uplift the hroa as its eternal spouse and companion into an endurance everlasting beyond Ea and beyond time? He has just arrived at the doctrine of the resurrection of the body. That the body shall be uplifted, shall join the Fea, and shall endure beyond Ea itself, which means, therefore, beyond even time itself, into eternity. Not just the spirit living into eternity, but the body living in eternity. Which, again, is a Christian doctrine, the doctrine of the resurrection of the body. And now, further conclusion. Thus would Arda, or a part thereof, be healed not only of the taint of Melkor, but released even from the limits that were set for it in the vision of Eru, of which the Valar speak. Elvish mind blown, right? I mean, if you wanted to talk about Arda healed, right? even a bit of Arda, to say that, you know, through the death 
of a human when the fea of when the spirit of the human leaves Arda, it takes with it like its body is uplifted and resurrected and uh, goes with it, and its body dwells eternally outside Arda, outside Ea, even. If you want to say that the body, the little bit of Arda, which, you know, of which the Hroa consists, right, of which it's made, is healed of the taint. That's a big deal. That's an enormous deal, right? Uh, that even a little bit, uh, so even, even if we only said that, he would be acknowledging here that through death, through death and the resurrection of the body, the human spirit becomes the vehicle, right? The fea, the human fea, uh, becomes the vehicle of the healing of a bit of Arda, the restoration. You know, no longer mark. The each human body becomes, through this uplifting process, a little piece of Arda, healed at least, maybe even Arda unmarred. That would be mind blowing. That would be amazing. But it's more than that. Not, because not only are we talking about healing the taint of Melkor, but being released from the limits that were set for it in the vision of Eru. There were always boundaries, right? Remember when, in the Ainuindale, after the music, when the vision is shown to the Valar, it's a, it's a thing, right? Like He's like, look at that over there. It's Ea, right? And they have to enter into it. They have to cross the boundary. And when they do, they commit to it, right? The Ainur who go in and they become the Valar because they're bound to it. They cross that frontier and it's it's pretty solid frontier, right? Um, there are boundaries to Ea. And it's like this, so a piece of Arda itself is released from the limits that were set for it in the vision of Eru itself. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, Josiah, exactly. This corruptible must put on incorruption. Yeah, that's the that's from St. Paul, of course. Um the doctrine of the resurrection of the body, First uh, Corinthians fifteen, right, Josiah? Um, yeah, yeah, that's precisely what he's thinking about and talking about here. And by he, I mean not only Tolkien. I mean Finrod is talking about the doctrine of the resurrection of the body. Um, yeah, David, this is hints of that final theme in the music. Absolutely, absolutely, that transcended what the vision that was given uh, to the Valar. But wait, Finrod isn't done. Therefore, I say that if this can be believed, then mighty indeed under Eru were men made in their beginning, and dreadful beyond all other calamities was the change in their state. Is it then a vision of what was designed to be when Arda was complete? Of living things, and even the very lands and seas of Arda made eternal and indestructible, forever beautiful and new? with which the fair of men compare what they see here? Or is there somewhere else a world of which all things which we see, all things that either elves or men know, are only tokens or reminders? Elves 
are used to... Elves are restricted to Arda, right? Elves are restricted to Arda. Their whole worldview is confined within the world, shockingly, right? Um, the idea that Arda is all that there is for them. Anyway, they know that, you know, Ea, that, or sorry, that Eru is beyond Ea, right? Um, but, um, uh, but they, you know, they live in a circumscribed world. They live in a world with boundaries, geographical boundaries and temporal boundaries, right? And their love for Arda is great and they are content and they are filled with delight within Arda. But they know that eventually they're going to die. He's been there, right? There's going to be an end. Arda is going to come to an end. And as far as they know, they're going to come to an end with it. And Arda itself will be no more. So when they look around, it doesn't grow stale to them, but there is a kind of tincture of sorrow because they know that the world is eventually going to end and they're going to be around to see it, right? Um, there's, a, there's a deadline. There's a, there's a terminal point of the delight of the world. Um, and in this sense... And this, again, is the point that Finrod was making earlier about the slow-footed hunter. In this sense, the elves do not live as immortals. In this sense, the elves are always very aware of their mortality the mor and the mortality of all things. Right? They will get to enjoy Arda for a very long time by a human time frame. But... Um, Although they will enjoy it for a very long time, they will enjoy it in the knowledge that it's not going to last forever and that this will come to an end. The conclusions that the lore of men and that Andreth's reasoning is bringing Finrod to is this incredible and exciting thing. He's experiencing wonder now, for sure, right? Because this is wonder at the idea of something beyond Arda. Is it then a vision of what was designed to be when Arda was complete? Is that the... So, the thing that the fair of men compare, what they see here, that real home, that place where you belong, we belong here in Arda, this is our place and it feels completely natural to us, uh, you know, we are connected to it in our every fiber, right? Because we know we belong here in ways that you're not, and it becomes stale to you, and you like it, but it's, you know, it's not, you're not connected to it in that way. Is it because you're connected, there's another place you're connected to? And it's not just a separate, it's not just like a, there's Arda over here, and there's a different world over here, right? It's, you're not just an aliens coming from this other world. But the other world, that, that place that your spirits seem to know about somehow, is it a vision of what was designed to be when Arda was complete? That thing that's going to come next. Remember? Remember Manway? Remember Manway talking about hope? Hope in Arda healed? Hope in Arda unmarred? That holding on to the knowledge of what should have been and that trust 
in what will be in Arda Healed, right? Um, is that thing that we're meant to have trust in? Blind trust? Really? Right? Ho a hope without assurance? Is that thing the thing that you humans, in some sense, have direct experience of? Your spirits have, like, memories of that vision? Of living things and even the very lands and seas of Arda made eternal and indestructible, forever beautiful and new? Oh, that phrase. That is the deepest dream of the elves. Right? The reality that they live with, the lands and seas of Arda, are beautiful, but they're temporal, and they're destructible, and they will certainly pass away. But what if, what if Arda could be made eternal and indestructible, forever beautiful and new? What, what? What, what if all of Arda is going to be uplifted in that same way? And the fair of men somehow are connected to that, have a memory of that. Or is there somewhere else a world of which all things that we see, all things that either elves or men know are only tokens or reminders? Is it not the Arda that we know perfected, but is it is the Arda that we know only a copy of that thing. But this is strange to me. And even as did your heart when I spoke of your unrest, so now mine leaps up as at the hearing of good news. This, then, I propound, was the errand of men. Not the followers, but the heirs and fulfillers of all. No, to, to heal the marring of Arda already foreshadowed before their devising, and to do more, as agents of the magnificence of Eru, to enlarge the music and surpass the vision of the world. That men, humans, in uplifting, that the, the uplifting of the piece of Arda, that is their body, is the foretaste, is the promise of... the healing of the marring of Arda. A glimpse into a future unseen even by the Valar themselves, because it's beyond the bounds of the vision that was given to the Valar. That humans are agents of the magnificence of Eru to enlarge the music and surpass the vision of the world. Um, yeah, that is Finrod's remarkable conclusion. His heart leaps up as at the hearing of good news. Evangelium. Um, uh, yes, good news, gospel. Um, Godspell. Um, this is good news. Remember he said, the elves 
have no hope of survival. They don't have any assurance that they're going to live past the end of Arda. But now, maybe they do. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so let's stop here because this is a really good stopping place. We could go on, but going on is starting the next conversation. I mean, it's still the same conversation, of course, but uh, this is the end of this line of reasoning uh, and a uh, a pretty good stopping place. But I, I would just sort of pause again to reflect. Um, by the way, and you see, you see why I was saying that I thought that this was a pretty remarkable... Uh, conversation to be having on the anniversary of Tolkien's own personal death, right? Um, but anyway, uh, I I am staggered at the beauty of Tolkien's sub-creation here. Um, Let me be blunt. Most of the time, most of the time, an author tries to take Christian doctrine and cram it into a story. It doesn't go real well. Um, a lot of people object to that in Lewis. I disagree with them. I think Lewis does it very well, in fact. Uh, and um, I even think that you can see the evidence of that in the kinds of reactions that people have to it. Um, but that's a discussion for another time. Um, I, um, uh, Nevertheless, many times uh, when... And so this project here, Tolkien taking his immature, and I say immature meaning like originating from the time of Tolkien's own emotional and intellectual immaturity, you know, in his early 20s when he was starting to write this stuff. Um, the mythology that grew out of, you know, his own uh, sort of personal, emotional, spiritual, experiential, and artistic immaturity, right? to take that stuff and to say, okay, I'm going to go back over that, but I'm going to do an overlay of theology and I'm going to reconcile it explicitly with Christian doctrine. That's not a process that's going to end well in most cases, right? And uh, if I were just like talking to a person who said that they wanted to do that, right? Uh, I mean, if, if like, I don't know, if like, uh, you know, 1955 Tolkien were to come to me or, you know, 1949 or whatever, Tolkien were to come to me and be like, okay, here's my plan. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to go back uh, to the Silmarillion and I'm going to take and I'm going to, uh, I'm going to make it, um, you know, philosophically consistent and I'm going to reconcile it with Christian doctrine in, in some deeper ways. I'd be like, dude, I don't, um, I don't, um, I don't, I don't know if that's a good idea, man. I, I, I don't, I don't know if it's going to end well, right? I mean, it's, there's so much potential for that not ending well, but the way that he 
the profundity of his, not just of his thought here, but of his artistry and of his sub-creation here. The, the way in which he has succeeded in giving, I mean, it's almost like a whole new dimension, right? I mean, it's almost like now looking back at the whole history of Arda, in one sense, his mythology begins with like, let's imagine a two race situation, right? You know, Earth, as far as far as we know, at least in you know traditional human tradition, uh, has been a like a world with one rational species in it. So let's imagine a world with more than one, right? Of course, we saw in a different way C.S. Lewis wrestling with that same thing, uh, with that same concept. What would a world with several different now species look like in Out of the Silent Planet? Um, well, Tolkien was has been wrestling with that from the very beginning, right? Looking at what a, what what would a world with elves and men look like, right? It's not like that was the only thing motivating it, but it's been a big part of his storytelling from the very beginning, right? And that sense of wonder, that uh, encounter with otherness, uh, which is so delightful in his works, has been one of the consequences of his attempting to do that, right? Yeah, well, now the result of his bringing these ideas in and thinking through this stuff more is not to sort of paste over it, right, with something rigid and clunky. Um, it's not to strip it of its beauty. All of these things could easily have happened instead. Now, it's like far more complicated and interesting than it ever was. There is a retroact, for me anyway, there is a retroactive enrichment of all of his mythology and stories if we sort of take up the invitation of this, uh, of the Athrobeth. It opens up just amazingly more tantalizing worlds of what could have been. Imagine, imagine the Tolkien who wrote the Athrobeth going back and actually rewriting the whole story. Imagine the story of Turin Turambar rewritten by this guy, right? After this. Imagine what could happen here. We'll get to see a bunch of stuff. Right. Um, we'll get to see a bunch of stuff uh, that he does write after this, of course. Um, but it is amazing. Oh, man, Nancy. Absolutely. Yeah. Nancy says, tell him to finish the Lay of Lathian instead. Yes. The Lay of Lathian. Holy cow. Um, unbelievable. So. Anyway, sorry. Those uh, just my final reflections here. Uh, I'll let you guys go. We will continue with the Athrobeth and uh, talk about the old hope uh, next week. Lots of talk about hope uh, next week. So thank you, everybody, uh, for joining me. And uh, I, as always, look forward to our discussion next week. Don't forget to check out uh, Middlemoot and uh, uh, suggest some paper topics. Perfect place to do some thinking and talking about hope. Um, see you next week, everybody. Bye now. The Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013, completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org fund.